0: Christina has this habit of angling the camera when doing Zoom calls so that it faces as much of the room as possible without telling me so that I walk naked across it (laughs) in the middle of the conversation Why are you naked in the first place? It's my own house! Why should I be naked? I am wearing pants, Amy, I'd just like to specify
1: I mean, she has a point, James, during the business day, I mean, clothes are encouraged (laughs) Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's weekly podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy.
0: And I'm James Palmer, Foreign Policy's deputy editor.
1: On this week's episode, we're going to look at the environment. Since economies shut down, air in some of the most polluted cities in the world has cleared, and animals have been spotted roaming the streets in others. The natural world has been given a temporary reprieve, but will it have any lasting impact? And will the disruption bought by the pandemic affect the way people think about climate change? But first this.
2: The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat, climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So there's been some fantastic headlines over the past couple of months, you know, celebrating the fact that nature is returning. So this idea about how the coronavirus pandemic has given the environment a bit of a, a bit of a break has spurred some fantastic memes over the past couple of months. Um, some of which are true, you know, their goats were roaming the streets in a in a village in Wales, um, and then some, of course, which haven't been. You know, there was the whole video of uh, dolphins galloping through the Venice canal, which turned out to be a fake. Um, and my favourite one, actually, was. Uh, the story about elephants getting drunk on corn wine and passing in out. Yuenai. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which actually sounds like my idea of a really great afternoon, drinking too much corn wine and passing out in a tea plantation in China.
0: It sounds delightful. I've done right. it a couple of times. So, yeah, I think one of the things is that people have this real need for, you know, sort of um, happy stories at this time and this mm, idea mm. that humanity has somehow violated the natural world. And so by retreating, we can give it time to come back and i think that's very mm. appealing but it can also be sort of a dangerous romanticism yeah. because the you know the real challenges in the environment and these are the challenges we're seeing in the the lockdown are always how do you reconcile like the the real needs of especially poor people against environmental costs because mm-hmm. um you know we think of polluting factories and so on but those are the things that often Um, support and uh, eventually lift the poor out of absolute poverty in the developing world. They're projects that are wanted by local people. So it's a very hard balance to strike. And this kind of image of it's okay if we just remove humanity from the picture, everything will be fine, of course, ignores the fact that that we quite like humanity. So you get these sort of images of, you know, dolphins and goats and so on. Was I think the real recoveries have been things that are perhaps less dramatic, but still, um, still meaningful. You know, we've seen these big drops in air pollution, we've seen mm. emissions drop. But I think the real question here is, does this make any difference in the long term?
1: I mean, there have been some optimistic estimations that even this temporary drop in carbon emissions could have saved tens of thousands of lives uh, because the amount of people each year that die as a result of pollution and air pollution is just astonishing. I mean, I think it's something like 4 million people a year. So way more than have already died from the coronavirus die through air pollution and that some of those lives may be saved even if this is just a temporary drop. But I think expecting this to have some kind of long-term effect on climate change is a bit like, you know, when I go to the gym once a year and think that I've done something for my health, you know, like, yes, you did the right (laughs) thing, but it, you know, look at the big picture here.
0: And I think those sort of abstract long-term considerations are really hard to make because you can say, Mm -hmm. okay, maybe the air pollution, maybe the air pollution drop will save some lives, but does the fall in GDP cost lives? You know, does the, the lack of wealth, lack of production, um, it's it, it all ends up becoming so tangled and making these sort of long-term guesses is really hard. Now, one of the things is, you know, from the 1990s, we did see a lot of examples of um, places that were given serious breaks did have the ability to heal and recover for the ecologies to come back in a much more serious way than we had once thought. And you can think, in fact, of examples like the rejuvenation of English waterways. I mean, we forget what the Thames used to look like in the 1960s. It was black. Mm -hmm. There have been amazing recoveries. uh, Even in some of the the Russian lakes that were poisoned during the Soviet era that had a chance to uh, recover once the Soviet Union collapsed, have seen these sort of returns of nature. But that takes place over a period of, you know, uh, years or decades, not months yeah uh, and so i I don't think that 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 this sort of temporary break will mean a lot and in the long term the picture starts to look quite bleak for a number of reasons
1: yeah and clearly halting human activity like we have done over the past six weeks is not a long term answer and certainly not a long term answer um for poorer countries especially
0: it, and it causes this big problem that um once stuff comes back the uh, the urge to strip away restrictions, environmental restrictions in order to try and push growth up is going to be there. We're yeah. already seeing it with in America where, you know, you've had this assault by Trump on uh, on the EPA. But in, in, in Indonesia, where the new uh, business law attempts to roll back environmental review, mm-hmm. um, and I think we're very likely to see it in China. Now, one of the repeat patterns, paradoxically, has been that when Chinese GDP... Weakens and pollution gets worse now that which of course is the reverse of what we would normally think, hmm, but when when basically when GDP goes down, local officials feel and local and provincial officials feel under pressure to get the numbers back up and so ease or ignore environmental restrictions in order to try and force growth higher again and I think that we'll see almost a a, a countrywide scale of that um, hmm. as there's this urge to recover. Uh, a lot of shortcuts are going to be taken.
1: Yeah. I mean you mentioned that that you know Indonesia and the United States have already taken steps to roll back environmental protections during the pandemic. But also some land and environmental activists fear that governments may use the coronavirus lockdowns to push ahead with unpopular projects while activists are confined to their homes. In Venezuela, Maduro's government has given the green light for companies to push ahead with gold and diamond mining in rivers in the Amazon. Um, While in Colombia, local NGOs have warned that death squads are taking advantage of the lockdowns because now they know where the environmental activists are, right? They're all at home. To get a sense of what it's like to be a frontline environmental defender during the pandemic, I spoke to JB Garganera, who's the national coordinator for ATN, an alliance of over... 100 organizations which lobby against destructive mining practices in the Philippines, which is already one of the most dangerous countries to be an environmental or land activist. Here's our conversation. I won't put my video on because it's 6 a.m. here in Washington, so I still look a bit scary, but it's nice to meet. hear.
3: Yes, Yeah. it's better not to have the video because uh, we don't have that fast. Uh, internet connection here
1: in normal times so not in a pandemic what is it like to be an environmental activist in the philippines what is what is the life like what what risks do people face
3: i would say it is a dangerous country to be an environmental activist and i'm not saying this because of not only my personal experience i've had this risk and threats uh, directly confronted by me and my family. But it's dangerous to be an environmental activist because you're only a small organization or you're probably a, an organization that is marginalized in the community and you're against big corporations that have money, have influence, or even political links. In our alliance alone, I our alliance is fifteen years old. We were founded in two thousand and five. We we have about seventeen people killed already. So it's not a good number. Every year we have mm. one of our member or our leader, who 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 is killed. Seventeen killed. people. Yeah, killed. Mm. This does not include the harassment cases, the threats, the court cases, and the uh, lawsuits filed against environmentalists. That's on our alliance alone.
1: And how has the coronavirus and the lockdowns Mm -hmm. in the Philippines affected the work of land and environmental defenders?
3: The lockdown has effectively uh, immobilized us. As the quarantine is in effect, as activists and as lobbyists, we cannot go out. Uh, we can't hold meetings. We can't go to the office. We cannot submit our letters or meet with government officials uh, and present our case. Second, uh, and this is a more significant impact to the communities, they're in the same boat. Uh, they cannot go out. But that also means they have lost their income and their livelihood. Their farmers, their agriculture product sellers, or they are part of the informal economy, or they're fishers. None of that is allowed as economic activity during the quarantine or lockdown. But the government and even the mining company are business as usual. This is a very important issue for us right now from our perspective mining is not an essential economic activity and as such all mining operations and activities should stop uh, because everyone is in a lockdown. Mm -hmm. A third impact for us is illegal mining activities are being supported And anybody who is opposing uh, or critical against mining activities, the authorities such as the police or the military use the lockdown requirements and guidelines as the reason of threatening to arrest or actually arresting some of our leaders at the Mm -hmm. local level. We have seen this in at least one case in the Northern Philippines. Mm-hmm. And the DPO Mines, a mine operated by Oceana Gold Philippines Incorporated. I think what we're seeing is a pattern. Uh, we didn't see this aggressive moves of mining companies before the COVID-19 lockdown. Uh, maybe, and this is speculation on my part, maybe because the mining companies thought that The communities and the ordinary person would be so afraid to go out that they can proceed with their illegal activities. That's an assumption. But what is really worrying, particularly for us in the Philippines, is that this boldness and brazen entry of mining companies was never seen before COVID-19 lockdown.
1: Wow. So... Your concern is that they're taking advantage of the lockdowns to press ahead with these projects when people can't protest.
3: Yes. How is it that a protest can actually endanger the whole community when the actual mining operation is directly threatening the whole island or the whole community? And really, these illegal operations inside the mining uh, area is actually increasing the risk of the spread of the infection when we have workers who are not able to do physical distancing and they're actually exposed to all other foreign workers in the area.
1: What impact does mining have on people's life in the Philippines?
3: One set of huge impact of mining is on our natural resources. You know, As mining is a uh, permanent land use change. I mean, when a mine operates, it permanently changes the Mm -hmm. physical characteristic of the land. Now, if you take a look uh, on forests, you have indigenous peoples. We have a lot of indigenous peoples. And we do have a special law for indigenous peoples. We recognize the rights to land and ownership of land of indigenous peoples. there's a separate impact to the lives and culture of indigenous peoples when mining enters their ancestral lands. Right. But the, the impact then goes further. Uh, our agriculture and food security is threatened because the irrigation and even the actual agricultural lands are subjected to the mining operations. and. To a large extent, that's where a lot of the resistance against mining operations are. Generally, this whole setup, we feel that mining is a losing game for us. And unlike other Latin American or African countries, mining in the Philippines contributes very, very little to our economy and This has been our long-standing argument with our government. These extractive activities is driving uh, climate change and the impacts of climate change are creating changes in our wildlife and in in our natural resources. And this pandemic is just one symptom of why we need a new a new form and a new mode of development that has to work with nature. If we are not learning our lesson from this pandemic, we can expect more ruthless and more terrible challenges that nature will bring upon us.
1: That was J.B. Garganera, the National Coordinator for ATN, speaking from the Philippines.
2: Hey listeners, it turns out that our collective action can stop more than just global pandemics. Discover reasons for hope on the climate crisis with Heat of the Moment, a new series from FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I think one of my big questions is whether or not the pandemic is going to make people take climate change more seriously. So on one of the very first episodes we did on this, I spoke to Roxanne Campsie, who is a science journalist, and she described, you know, tearing her hair out in January, watching the coronavirus spread and, and governments not do enough to, to stop it. And she said it was a little bit like a sped up version of what it must be like for scientists to watch climate change, right? You're just sitting there going, this is happening. It's coming. It's coming. Why isn't anyone paying attention? Um, and so I wonder whether enough people and governments and policymakers will take that lesson away from the pandemic, that what happens in, in Wuhan, China can affect mm-hmm. lives, you know, here in the United States and mm. around the world in a very, very profound way.
0: I, I fear that the lesson in a lot of this is that the United States in particular simply lacks the united politics or state capacity to respond to climate change. In, mm-hmm. I mean, we say a sped up version, think we could see these numbers literally growing day by day, and yet there was this denialism. Yeah. Um, we've seen this denialism of deaths that are happening now. Uh, this attempt to pretend that 2,000 deaths a day is normal. Climate change generally takes place over a much slower time frame, and it's even harder for people to break away from ideological traps and connect that to reality. Yeah. So, I, I guess the takeaway here is, if in some ways, a little bit depressing. Not that we'll learn from this, but that this is a uh, uh, an ideal case. Of a disaster, of a natural disaster that you can see coming, and yet we still mm. fail to do anything about it.
1: Yeah. So, James, I thought it was interesting what you said earlier about, you know, halting industry. Whilst it may have temporarily given a bit of a reprieve for the for the climate, uh, is not the way forward, and this is going to hit developing countries especially hard. For our next interview, I spoke to Gernot Wagner, who is a climate economist and professor at NYU. Um, And he had something really interesting to say, which is that the way out of this is actually not less development, it's more development, but just a different kind than what we have seen so far. You know, there's been a lot of talk of of the environment and these memes going around of, of nature is returning. Are you optimistic? about the impact the pandemic will have on climate change?
2: Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. so, <laughs> so, sure, there might be a tiny little rebound happening. But by the way, we will come back with a vengeance. Yeah. As in, pollution will come back with a vengeance. And it already does mm-hmm. um, in places that are right, recovering. Wuhan, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if anything, what this shows is... How difficult, how really, really difficult it is to cut emissions because even something like this, mm-hmm. right? We, you know, we literally went back to our caves, yeah. Right? We shut down everything, and emissions went down by what? Five percent? Twenty percent, maybe? Right? Uh, well, not globally by twenty, right? In some areas by twenty, and um, the real problem, of course, is right. We will bounce back. quickly. Um, So no, there is no silver lining
1: Mm -hmm. here. So even if in the best estimates, uh, CO2 emissions drop by 5% this year, as you said, I understand that that's still not enough, that to meet the Paris Climate Agreement goal of reducing global warming just to 1.5 Celsius, we would need to reduce CO2 emissions by 7.6% every year for the next decade. So even this incredible lockdown is still not putting us on track to do what we actually need to be doing.
2: Exactly, right? It's not enough, and frankly, it shows the limits of using behavioral change alone to do this, all right? Uh, A solution to climate change looks nothing like what we are going through. A solution to climate change means more economic activity it means more investment. It means more employment for that matter, right? Mm-hmm. From a public policy perspective, uh, you know, the green stimulus, the Green New Deal, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, it's a win-win-win. It's, it's good for the climate. Um, it's good for the economy. Um, and, you know, it's good for workers. It's good for people.
1: So you wrote in an article last month um, for Project Syndicate that the coronavirus is like climate change, but just at warp speed. Do you think that the pandemic and the response to it will teach policymakers, but also the public, a lesson about collective problem solving that can be applied to to climate change, right? Like, nobody can individually solve the pandemic or stop the coronavirus in the same way that none of us individually no matter how hard we try to not recycle sorry to recycle uh not fly not drive it doesn't it's barely gonna make a dent
2: yes and no right and by the way so i'm not saying don't do the right thing you know which you know i i'm vegetarian i don't have a driver's license and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. right we should be doing all these things um the big question, of course, is, right, what lessons are we taking out of this? Um, there are, right, so I would say, you know, mm-hmm. the fringe, but still, right, there is a, uh, some people, a lot of people who are talking about, oh, this will be a guide to how to do something about climate change. And the short answer is no, it's not about shutting down. It's about more mm-hmm. activity. Um, is there opportunity here? Of course, right? And even sort of, you know, even on the behavioral sense, you and I individually, um, just as an example, the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for the very first time um, this month, earlier this month, had its lead author meeting, one of their lead author meeting, a couple hundred people, virtually. They've never done that. They've always, you know, flown halfway around the world to hold Mm -hmm. these meetings in person. Um, thinking about this now you know it seems silly that said there too the big big lesson is it takes policy right on an individual level right i can easily see this go the the exact other way right this um you know this summer right we're all stuck inside right we're not going to be flying to our favorite vacation destinations well next summer let's double down right we saved a bit of money this year let's go all out next year or the you know the regional widget sales association they were supposed to have the sales meeting in in cleveland this year well next summer Mm -hmm. it'll be barcelona or bust so
1: you think that all of you know these kind of benefits that we're quite starting to see glimpses of right people having zoom meetings instead of in-person meetings stories like, you know, in Milan, they're going to look to have more bike lanes after this is all over because people are going to look for more socially distanced ways to commute. Um, Those are clearly great steps in the right direction. But what you're saying is that that's not enough, that it's really going to take a executive level policy decisions nationally, internationally to really actually take on climate change.
2: Exactly. Yes, it does take policy. But, you know, mm-hmm. just to be clear, what does that mean? Well, we need to go out and vote, <laughs> right? Um, you know, which these days sounds like an, uh, you know, overtly political statement. It just isn't, right? Um, mm-hmm. Government will only do what we demand and, of course, what the special interests mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, right? It's not as simple as saying government will eventually do what it, what people want uh, in a democracy. Uh, uh, no, right? So if you open the floodgates to... Um, Uh, influenced by, you know, voting by, uh, with your pocketbook, Um, in this case, uh, of course, right, there are many, many more things, institutional reforms that need to happen along the way. But yeah, at the end of the day, um, we need to go out and demand those institutional reforms and the right policies. Um, Of -hmm. course, easier said than done. Uh, But yes, uh, you and I individually can do a lot Mm -hmm. In this case, primarily, of course, helping to guide policymakers in the right direction.
1: That was Gernot Wagner. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Monday. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, head over to foreignpolicy.com to check out our other podcasts, which will help you get through all of those hours in lockdown hear first-hand stories from intelligence operatives from around the world in our series, I Spy, and hear accounts from the front lines in the fight against climate change in our new podcast series, Heat of the Moment, which is produced in partnership with the Climate Investment Funds. I'm Amy McKinnon.
0: And I'm James Palmer.
1: Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands.
0: And don't touch your face.